Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. It says this, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord to write to you again about this, as if he said it before, which he has, to write to you about this again is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, who boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews regarding the law, a Pharisee regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding righteousness that is in the law, blameless. This is Paul's resume that he's running down for us. And then Paul is saved at some point, and Paul looks back at his resume and all that he has accomplished, and here's, what, here's Paul's assessment in light of his relationship with Jesus. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered it to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here's the gospel, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that is based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for your word, God. We thank you for your people. We thank you, God, that we can gather today to study your word together. Um, Lord, I pray today, Father, that you would be with us I pray, Father, that your presence would be real among us today, God. I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, you would do work in our hearts and our minds, God, that you would move us to change, that you would move us to transformation. And so, God, I pray today that our ears would be open, our eyes would be open, our hearts would be open, that we would receive all that you want to say to us on today. And God, I pray today for clarity um, through the preaching of God's word. I pray that your people would understand, but I also pray that Christ would be glorified today, God. I pray that we would know Jesus more. I pray that he would be made famous today um, through the preaching and the study of your word, God. And so, Father, we pray today that we would engage with all of our senses, God, that whatever is distractions going on in our hearts, our minds, at home, family members, and friends, and all that other stuff, God, I pray that we would just tune that out for a few minutes, God, and that, that we would focus on you and we would worship we would worship you through studying of, of Scripture, God. And so, Father, we thank you today for everything that you're going to say and do among us. In Jesus' name we pray, and the people of God said, Amen. You may be seated in the Lord's presence today. For all intents and purposes, today, I think it will be fitting to title my sermon with a cultural reference. I think this cultural reference describes most of us more than we think that it does. We've all said this. We've all observed this happening. But if I had to give my sermon a title today under the subject of rebuild, 
To borrow a cultural reference, a cultural idiom today, I would like to tag this text, you doing too much. <laughs> you doing too much. We, we all have witnessed people who are doing too much. Typically, when we say someone is doing too much, we observe their actions that don't coincide with what they're trying to get done. Sometimes we see people on social media who are posting around the clock telling too much of their business. And our response to those type of people is simply this, you're doing too much. Sometimes people tell too much of their lives and put it out for public consumption when they should keep it to themselves. That, that's the type of doing too much. Sometimes we see people who are going above and beyond the call of duty, going above and beyond what they're supposed to be doing or what you asked them to do. And you have to tell them, wait a minute, take a chill pill because you're doing too much. But, but that doesn't just fit in cultural references or, or in life in general. Oftentimes, when we are walking our life out with God, we are doing stuff. We are making efforts. We are doing work all to gain God's favor. And God is looking at us, telling us, you're doing too much. Can I tell you this, that if you are doing salvation by works, God looks at you and God is saying, you're doing too much. If you think that you can earn God's favor by paying your tithe, by showing up on Sunday morning, by serving for a couple of hours, and you should do all of those things, but if you're doing that and your heart does not follow, you're doing too much. And so we look at the text today, Paul is trying to warn the church at Philippi not to do too much when it comes to the gospel. Why? Because everything that needs to be done has already been done by Jesus. And so with that being said, Paul switches and shifts the direction of the letter from unity to, to address a very important, significant issue. Having talked about unity throughout the end of chapter 1 and through chapter 2, he takes it back to the basics and seemingly what he has already discussed with them at some point, most likely while he was with them, he talked to them about the gospel. He wants to talk to them about the gospel again, not just simply to tell them what the gospel is, but also to tell them what the gospel is not. But he does it in a manner where he addresses their heart posture and their attitude to which he can't help but have when he thinks about the goodness of the gospel of Jesus. And the first thing that Paul tells them in the text, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, why would he tell them to rejoice in the Lord before anything else? He wants them to rejoice in the Lord so that they can remember and recall all of the wonderful things that God has done for them in Christ Jesus. At some point, when you think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, how you are saved by grace and by grace alone, you ought to rejoice in the Lord. If you are having a bad day at your job, if you are having a tough issue with your family members, if things are not going your way, there should be one reason that you can find to rejoice every day of your life and you should rejoice because of the gospel rejoice in knowing that salvation doesn't come from our goodness but from the finished work of Christ we didn't earn it we didn't deserve it but God picked us chose us loved us while we were sinners Christ died for us that should cause us all to rejoice to know that the gospel is not a gospel of works but a gospel of grace should cause us to rejoice when we can rejoice in the Lord we can rejoice in knowing 
that we have union with Christ, that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also one day raise us with Christ. To add anything to that would be unnecessary and a burden that we would add to our shoulders and weigh on our shoulders that Christ has already cared for us. And so Paul is telling them, you can rejoice in the gospel because the gospel is not about what you can do, but it's about what God has already done for you. So we can rejoice in the gospel. Paul never missed out on an opportunity to talk about the goodness of God and the gospel of grace. He says to write to you again about this is no trouble for me. He says be mindful of the goodness and the essence of what you already believe. And there's a reason why. He's saying this because it's a safeguard for them. If you know the truth, you'll be able to detect a lie when you hear it. And Paul is saying... I've already experienced this in other churches at some point. There, there, there will, at some point, without fail, there will be some who will enter a church and will work by a gospel of works and not grace. They, they will preach a gospel of works. They will preach a, a, a law-driven gospel. So, so for, for me to write to you about this again is to safeguard the foundation of your faith and keep it free from cracks. There will be some that will tell you that you must have Christ and some other form of activity to go along with it, i.e. works to obtain salvation. And so to protect you from that, uh, it, it will do your faith harm if you don't know this. I want to remind you of what the faith is and warn you about those that will come to destroy your faith. It is so serious that Paul is using strong and harsh language to describe those that would preach a gospel of works. And if you look at verse 2, look at what Paul is calling them. This is worse than hit them up. Paul says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate, who mutilate the flesh. Paul is going in on them. Paul is being real disrespectful. Paul is not mincing words. And if it seems that Paul is doing this, I want to tell you that it is true. Paul is not talking about actual animals. Paul is calling people dogs. Paul is actually talking about people. That's how serious he takes when people come in with a gospel based on works, not on grace. He calls them dogs, evil workers, those who mutilate the flesh. You know why he calls them dogs? Because in those days, people didn't walk around with little, little shih tzus and chihuahuas and these little cute little dogs that y'all got at y'all house that's all white and fluffy. That's not the type of dogs he's talking about. He's talking about some big savages, some, some, some mongrels, some people that go and eat in trash, dogs that look like beasts that are coming in and being and intruding in places where they're not wanted. He's calling them dogs, evil workers, those who preach a gospel works, those who mutilate the flesh because flesh mutilation was something that pagans did. They cut off their skin in order to get closer to the gods. And so he's calling them all of these names to drive the point home that they are people who are working against the gospel of grace and these group of people have a name they were called Judaizers and Judaizers were Jewish Christians or so they call themselves Christians they were Jewish Christians that oftentimes came into churches and tried to convince Gentile Christians non-Jewish Christians that they had to adopt the Jewish rituals and customs in addition to trusting in Christ they had to accept the Jewish law keeping in order to be saved and so their confidence lied not in Christ and his finished work but their confidence lied in the rights primarily in the right of circumcision 
a physical operation that took place on the flesh. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this practically. The church at Philippi is, com- uh, is comp- uh, comprised mostly of Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians. These are adult people. These are adult men and women. And you have Judaizers coming in telling these grown people that in addition to Jesus, we also got to circumcise you. That hadn't hit y'all yet. I said these are grown people. These are grown women and men. That these people are telling that they got to have a physical operation somewhere at 30 years old. That they needed to do that plus have Jesus. And so when we, we hear that, it sounds ridiculous to us. But let me tell you something. The Jewish people didn't pull this out of thin air. That I, I kind of can feel them a little bit, but not really. They didn't pull it out of thin air. And so what I want to do is give you a, a short historical background. This is for your understanding so that we can live better and we can know better. This is for your understanding. So what I'm going to show you now is the origins of circumcision. And so we look at Genesis chapter 17, verses 11 through 12, we will see the initial uh, right of circumcision and this is uh, a God speaking to the people he says you must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you notice verse 12 I want you to remember verse 12 for my note takers throughout your generations every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days Oh, every male in your household. And so when God instituted this covenant of circumcision, this was God confirming and guaranteeing them that he would be have a relationship with them and he would remain faithful in the relationship. But it went both ways. They were supposed to be faithful and God was going to be faithful. And so this covenant was made with Abraham, promising him that he would have many descendants and that they would be God's people. And, 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 and so when they got circumcised, it was symbolic symbolic of something that was being removed from their hearts. It was symbolic of something. It was always symbolic. And so for a person not to get circumcised meant to break apart from your relationship with God. Henceforth, why they believed that people needed to be circumcised because without it, you could not have a relationship with God. But if we move on through the Old Testament, the prophets eventually, specifically Jeremiah, tells the people, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the force skins, not, not of your physical body, but remove the foreskins of your heart. And so we get to the New Testament. I hope you're following along. We get to Christ. When Christ comes in, his death made the right of circumcision unnecessary for salvation. He came and fulfilled every law and kept every covenant. And then Jesus sent the Holy Spirit that then circumcised our hearts and that, obey, and that enabled us to obey God's law. So circumcision went from being a physical thing to a spiritual thing. It was symbolic of a deeper commitment that people had with God. Y'all with me? When we get to the book of Acts in the early church, in Acts chapter 15, read it on your own. There's a ferocious battle and argument taking place at a place called Antioch. And in Antioch, there were some Jewish believers that were from the party of the Pharisees. They were boldly proclaiming that in order for the Gentiles to be saved, they needed to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. A law, here's a kicker, they couldn't even keep the law themselves. It's crazy when people put requirements on you that they can't even do themselves. And this is what they're doing. 
And so Peter in Acts 15 responds to the people and he says, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. And so Peter is telling them, hey, salvation is not by circumcision, it's by grace in the Lord Jesus. So I want to read one last passage to you on circumcision that will encapsulate everything that we need to know about it. Romans 2, verses 25 through 29. Follow along with me. Follow along with me. Romans 2, 25 through 29. You need to know this. You need to understand this. You need to know this. You need to understand this. It's not enough just to say, oh, I just know what Jesus done for me. You need to understand your faith and what you believe. Verse 25, the Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are uncircumcised and possess God's law, but you don't obey it. For, for you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. What are you trying to say? And what is he trying to say? That He's trying to say this. They wanted ceremony, but they didn't want transformation. This is what he's saying. And Paul said, no, no, we are the circumcision because we worship by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is working in our hearts. And so we don't boast in ourselves and what works we can do. We boast in Christ and what he has done and in his work. Therefore, we put no confidence in the flesh. Here's what I'm trying to say. To attempt to find salvation in some sort of ritual will be to undermine and nullify salvation by grace. Are y'all with me? We all know people that think that because they were baptized as infants, that they are saved. We all know people who believe because they took communion a couple times or took the Eucharist a couple times that they are saved. Now, let me say this. Those things are good, but those things don't save a person. They are outward visible symbols of things that should have already happened in a person's heart. We are not saved by Jesus plus baptism or by Jesus plus communion. We are saved by Christ and by Christ alone. And so with that being said, some of us culturally, generationally, society, in society, here's what we do. Some, some Christians, some do a smorgasbord or a hodgepodge of Christianity. Jesus plus Allah. I like a little bit of Bible, and I like some of the little what the Quran says too. Jesus plus New Age mysticism, where we can put things out into the universe and give glory to the universe. And whatever we put out in the universe, the universe will give us back. So some of us want Jesus plus burning incense. Because you know you gotta get the evil spirits out when you're burning the incense. No, you let them in, boo. Jesus plus speaking to the African ancestors. I'm my African ancestors' wildest dreams. Or, or some Jesus plus the African angels. Angels are coming for Africa, Africa, Africa. 
G- Jesus plus calling on the dead on behalf of the living. <laughs> Trying to get in touch with your grandparents. This is what it means to put confidence in the flesh. Jesus plus something. Anytime you add to the gospel, you lose the gospel. It is not Jesus plus works. Salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. Anything that says Jesus plus something is bad math. So the question then becomes, when someone asks the question, what must I do to be saved? The answer is not go to church. The answer is not get baptized, though you should go to church and though you should eventually get baptized after you're saved. The answer is not be a good person, although you should strive to be good to people. The answer is not to do good deeds, although you should do good deeds. The answer is not to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, although you should do that. The answer is not to keep the Ten Commandments, although we should strive by the Spirit's power to keep the commandments and because they teach us how to live. But, but the problem is Romans 3. 20 tells us that no one declare, can be declared righteous by keeping of the law. And so the answer is none of those things. The answer to the question of what must I do to be saved is this. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. All of those things come as a byproduct of a relationship with God. You get baptized because you've already been baptized in your heart. You take communion because you already trust and believe in the gospel. You serve in church because Jesus has already served you. And so those things are byproduct of a relationship with God. They don't, we don't do them and then get a relationship with God. So here's what you need to know. We must trust in Christ's finished work on the cross and his resurrection. Peace with God and forgiveness is found in the gospel. This is what Jesus has accomplished for us. It is his work that saves us, not our own. It is his accomplishment in defeating sin and death that saves us, not our own accomplishments. This is not a DIY type of salvation. It is God from start to finish. And Paul says, therefore, we put no confidence in the flesh because it will be of no advantage to you. The flesh. We typically think of the flesh as the thing that is have the proclivity to sin and to temptation. That, that's kind of what we believe about flesh. But let, let me clarify your understanding. The flesh is not just what we think of. when We think of the temptation to sin. The flesh in its totality is what we are apart from God. The flesh is all of who we are without Jesus. At your best, without Jesus is in the flesh. At your worst, without God is in the flesh. So no matter how good a person is, if they don't have Jesus, their whole life is an operation in the flesh. And so here's what Paul says. He says, man, I don't put no confidence in the flesh because if anybody's got a background to put some confidence in something, it's me. Would you look at verses four through six? Here's what Paul says. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here's what Paul says. Remember what I told you about Genesis 17? I told you to take note of verse 12. That's why you got to take notes in church. You can't just be looking at me like I'm not on the law. You got to take notes in church. I told you to notice verse 12. Here's what Paul says. He says, I have confidence, reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, circumcise the eighth day. 
of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, man, I was persecuting the church. I was a terrorist. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, man, I kept the law to the best of my ability in that I was blameless. And so Paul is like, let me talk that talk. Let me run my resume. Let me tell you what about myself. He says, here's what I was born into. These are my inherited privileges. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's how Jewish I am, that I was circumcised on the the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel. I am a true descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm a pure-blooded Israelite. I'm not mixed at all. He says, by ancestry, I belong to God's chosen people. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israel's first king came from the tribe of Benjamin. My, my ancestry is on point. He says, I'm a Hebrew born of Hebrews. I'm the purest of the pure. Matter of fact, I speak Hebrew and Aramaic. I had the best education. So if you want to put your religious uh, standing against me, you will fail in comparison. But even in that, I don't put no confidence in it. He says, even if my religious ain't enough for you, check out my personal accomplishments. These are things I did on my own regarding the law of Pharisee. The strictest religious sect I was, sect I was, I was a part of. As a zeal, I persecuted the church. I love God so much, I was killing Christians because I believed that they were wrong. That's how far I took it. As a righteous under the law, I was blameless. I was consistent and conscientious that I did the right thing, that I observed the law. I wasn't perfect, but I did everything I could according to the law. Matter of fact, Galatians 1.14 uh, uh, ex exemplifies what Paul means by this. Galatians 1.14 says this, I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Paul was like, nobody could measure up to me. I was the LeBron James. Sorry, scratch that. I was the Michael Jordan of accomplishments. Paul is saying, my resume against everybody. If anyone could put confidence in their flesh, it's me. Not just spiritually, but practically. If there's anybody that could be saved by works and accomplishments, it would be me. But Paul says, man, when I met Jesus... When I met Jesus in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road, it changed everything. Not even the most religious or most accomplished person, I realized not even that person could be at peace with God apart from Jesus. And here's what he says in verses 7 through 9. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. I want that to sit with you because of everything that was a gain to me. I want you to think of everything in your life that you felt that you gained, that you attained, that you accomplished, that you have now, that is, this is mine. I did this. I did it. He says, I consider it to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I ain't mad about it. I consider them as dung literally means excrement. I consider it crap. I consider it crap so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that is based on faith. When he says it is a loss, Paul is comparing everything that he accomplished against knowing Christ, against being saved and submitted to Jesus. That's what he means when he says, knowing God, that he's saved, not just saved, but he's saved and submitted. We have a lot of people who would say that they're saved, but they ain't submitted. 
Paul is saying God transformed everything about my life, including my perspective on everything that I had accomplished. The thing is, it's nothing wrong with accomplishments. Paul just saying accomplishments aren't evil, but my perspective on them was evil because I thought that they merited me favor with God when they did not. And so Paul says, man, my family that I came from, my ethnicity, my religious upbringing, my personal pursuits, my accomplishment, they, they left me wanting because they didn't ultimately bring me peace with God that only came in a relationship with Jesus. I look back at all that I accomplished, and they were worthless. They were worse than worthless. They were nothing in comparison of knowing Jesus. When I think, when I think about what he's saying here, I think about the parable of the hidden treasure in Matthew 13, 44, and where, where, the, where the person says, it, it is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. Why would he sell everything that he had prior to buy the field? Because he saw the value in the field. It was worth far more than anything else he had accomplished or bought in his life. And this is how Paul views his relationship with God. He says, I gained Christ knowing that in Jesus I can stand before God on the day of judgment. And so when we look at verse 9 in the text, Verse 9 answers the question of how a person is saved. Hear this. Hear this. This is the crux of a doctrine called justification. Justification by faith. Don't you dare get sleepy on me. Justification. Don't be scared. Justification. Don't don't be scared by the word. Justification means just what it sounds like. Justice. It is a legal term. Somebody that has been made right with God. Not guilty, but innocent. Not guilty, not innocent, but made righteous. And so Paul is like, this is my justification. Not having a righteousness of my own. Not attempting to keep the law of God by myself apart from Christ. I can't do that. But now because I have Christ I have a righteousness that I've received because he that knew no sin became sin for me so that in him I might become the righteousness of God this is what he's saying because of Christ I can stand before God justified let me make it real simple for you justified just as if I never sinned let me take it even further just as if I always obeyed That's what justification is. Why? Just as if I've always obeyed because my obedience is not mine. It's Christ's obedience and he obeyed perfectly. And this is the righteousness that Paul has. And Paul says, when I look at my resume, when I look at them letters behind my name and I look at them certifications and them designations and all that money and them promotions and that notoriety and that fame and that education and I compare it to knowing God and being made right before God and having peace with him, I trade that crap every day of the week. And this is what he's calling us to. Paul says, I know Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul says this, if I had to choose Christ or credentials, I'd choose Christ. Accomplishments are not evil, but confidence in them are. I'm going to give you two reasons why this is important. Why? Number one for Paul, because they kept him from Christ. To get caught up in your own pursuit of things to accomplish in life can deprive you and I of a fruitful relationship with Jesus. And I want to ask the question today, what, what have you set your sights on that can possibly keep you away from God? What, what is it that you want to do in the future or what you're trying to do now or have done that you look back at it and it severed your relationship with God or it put some sort of hiccup in it. 
He's saying, if it does that, then, 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 then I don't want it. And so suddenly, here's why. Suddenly, these things can shift our trust away from Christ and put it into ourselves. And we can think just because we're accomplishing something, God is pleased. No, you're just accomplishing stuff and you're pleased. Number two, these things have no salvific value. Salvific, what does that mean? Salvation, darling. When God judges us, it will not be on the merit of what we've accomplished or achieved. If we live this life and never put complete trust in Christ, those accomplishments, achievements, designations, letters behind your name will not stand up to judgment on the day of Christ when God judges the living and the dead. So I want to tell you this, trust in the flesh and faith in Christ are incompatible. You can't have both. The only thing that merits salvation is a right relationship with God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul wants to know God. But Paul doesn't just want to know Christ theoretically and theological. Many people have religious convictions. People who believe that they're with their mouths and their minds, but their hearts are far from God. He, he doesn't just want an emotional feeling of knowing Jesus. He doesn't want a knowledge that just says, I have faith in Christ. He wants to know him, not just accept his forgiveness and go about his own merry way, but he wants to know him. He wants an intimate relationship with Jesus where Jesus becomes his highest joy and his highest ambition. This is actually what we're designed for. And so we're breaking our backs. We're striving, worrying ourselves, putting ourselves through things to accomplish something. What we really think we're trying to accomplish is the thing, but no, what you're really trying to accomplish is a longing in your soul that only God can feel you don't need another thing you need more of Jesus and so I want to know God is what Paul is saying but there's knowledge of God and then there's really knowing God the question never is do you know God the question is does God know you often hear people say this about celebrities. Oh, I know they know Jesus. You know what knowing Jesus is? Knowing Jesus is trusting him and that trust leads you to obey him. There's a difference about knowing about God and knowing God. Honestly, Romans 1 tells us Everybody knows about God, but not everybody knows God. So oftentimes what can happen is we can take the gospel of grace, take Jesus' forgiveness, and walk away from him. But the gospel of grace does not undermine our need for the pursuit of holiness and the fruit of righteousness. Grace does not drive us to passivity but grace drives us to a passionate pursuit of God's presence. Who I'm saved by grace. I don't have to do nothing. No, you're saved by grace, and I don't have to do nothing. But because I'm saved by grace, I get to do stuff. I get to pursue God. Jesus' love for us should ignite our love for Jesus. 
And here's what Paul says in verses 10 through 11. This is the only thing that matters to Paul. He says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul is saying it's not just a matter of the mind, but it's of the heart. He wants the same life-giving spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to continue to sanctify his own heart and to sustain him in his pursuit of God. Paul wants to continue experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in his heart to make him more and more like Jesus to the point where he sees sin being destroyed in his life on a continual basis where he sees that he is pursuing God, that he loves God, that he can't get enough of God, that he wants to be filled by God no matter what it looks like. He wants to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Paul knows that in order to grow closer to Jesus, I must suffer and sometimes grow stuff because when I go through stuff, when I go through suffering that is brought about by the sovereignty of God, I realize that that is not a sign of God's displeasure, but sometimes suffering is a part of God's favor on us because it's showing us that God is with us and God is trying to do something in us. And this is what he's saying. And so he wants to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. He wants to know Christ for as much as he can. The problem is, is that you can't pursue Jesus and something else equally. You have to make a decision to follow Christ. I think Paul is living Mark 8, where he says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. This is what it means to gain Christ. Paul's highest ambition wasn't to accumulate more stuff. His primary ambition was to grow in intimacy with Jesus. Do you know, and I'm done, that God didn't create us to go do a bunch of stuff, although doing stuff is good at times. Doing stuff is good if it's a response to what God has done. If you're going to get a degree, an extra degree, it's good. If you're saying, you know what, I'm going to get this extra degree and do all of this extra work so that I can glorify God in a better way so that I can spread his gospel to more people. I want this promotion so that when it comes with influence and a raise, I can utilize that and leverage that influence and that raise to benefit the kingdom of God, not me. Accomplishing stuff is not bad. I don't want a marriage just so I can be, have an antidote to my loneliness. I want a marriage because I understand what marriage is about. And I want to, in a way, in a relationship, exemplify and glorify the relationship between Christ and his church. I don't want a degree so that I can dance across the stage. I want a degree so that I can get the degree and rejoice and dance with Jesus. I don't 
don't want to serve in church so that people can know my name and I can climb the spiritual ladder to success. No, I want to serve because Christ has served me and I want to do to other people what Christ has done for me. Are you getting the picture? Because when you're doing all that, it ain't doing too much. It's doing just enough. But when we do all the stuff apart from God, it's doing too much. Our highest ambition is to know God. And so when we're reading the Bible, when we're praying, when we're fellowshipping together, when we're serving in the body of Christ, when we're hanging out with other believers, we're not just doing it to do it, but we're doing it so that we can know God. We can know what it's like to be in fellowship with Jesus. John 17 and 3, I'll leave you with this and I'm done. This is eternal life that they may know you. This is Jesus. This is, this is eternal life for his disciples. This is eternal life that they may know you, talking about God, so that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ, which would be him. Eternal life is about knowing God. And my question today for all of us is this, is not do we know God, but do, does he know us? And the only way he knows us is if we have a heart relationship with him that is based off of the finished work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross and shed his precious blood for our sins and was raised to life for our salvation. That is what it means to know God. But if we are doing things apart from him, then you're doing too much. Let us pray. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.